I am sure most of you have been following on the news the tragic transfer of power from the United States to Afghanistan to the Taliban. And uh, I actually have a friend, Josh Manley, who is a pastor in the United Arab Emirates, which is a short plane ride to Afghanistan. He has friends who are pastors and Christians there in that region, and he's actually been, uh, over the, the last couple of weeks, giving updates on how we can pray for and help uh, those Christians who are facing imminent persecution in Afghanistan. And as they were preparing for a great systematic persecution, that has not arisen yet, as far as I know, they have scattered and are hiding in closets. Uh, threats have begun and persecution is expected, but here's what's been hard. Uh, Josh asked some of these brothers, what can we do? And they said, basically, everything has been shut down to the point that we know that we're not getting out, we're not going to escape, and the only thing that you possibly can do in this moment is to pray for us, so please pray. And so that's what we and many churches around the world have been doing, praying for the believers there. But isn't this a, an opportune time for us to consider Jesus' own words on persecution? I mean, I think there's a sense in which we want to think about persecution and have a real sense of the, the, the tragedy of it when it's far away. But when we know somebody who knows somebody, it feels like it gets closer, doesn't it? And it feels like you're thinking with a, a kind of clarity that maybe you're not able to think about when you're distanced from it. Well, this has come close to us. We're wrapping up our Happy Life series this morning where Jesus says, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be thinking about that this morning. Now, just to catch you up to speed about where this fits in the context of Matthew, you'll remember that Matthew actually launches his gospel with a genealogy. And most of you probably, when you first started reading your Bible, read that, and you're like, well, I'm going to jump over this to the encouraging bit. I'm not sure why anybody would put all of this in here. But I believe that what's going on in Matthew is, Matthew is looking to 2 Samuel 7. And he sees the promise of a new Davidic king who would come from an offspring of David, who would have an eternal throne, who would undo the effects of sin in this world and actually bring about peace or shalom for the people of God. And as he begins that genealogy, what he's doing is he's connecting Abraham to David to Jesus. And he's saying Jesus is that king that we've been longing for. Now, if you fast forward up to when you get to Matthew 5, he begins his preaching ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. And as he begins to preach, he starts with a number of blessed statements. Now, that word for blessed, particularly here in Matthew 5, comes from a Greek word that we've talked about. It means happy or flourishing. And so what Jesus is doing is he's preaching to the disciples and the, the other Gentiles who are listening on. He is beginning this sermon with a vision of what it looks like for you to be in a flourishing place according to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. He's saying, here's what it looks like for you to know that you're in a, a good place. And this vision that he gives, it looks so upside down. It's 
completely different than the kind of philosophical systems that were uh, there in that day, claiming that uh, pleasure is the way that you are going to know that you are in a good place. And that's the pursuit of, of humanity. And if the more pleasure you get, the better of a life you're living. And I can't imagine that persecution looks good in light of that. And of course, we also know that this wasn't too far from the way that Jews understood God and whether or not they were in a good place with God. We know the Jews, uh, you remember that rich young ruler who thought he was in a good place. He was obeying the rules, the law. He had lots of money. It seemed like he was in a good place with God. And Jesus says, you're in a good place except for one thing, the thing that matters above all things, that is your relationship with me. Go sell all and follow me. And then you'll know that you're truly in a good place. And he walks away what? Sad, not happy. Happy according to the world, but not happy according to the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, as we're dropping down into this last beatitude, we find that Jesus shows a kind of irony that eclipses them all. And that is that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are actually in a very good place. They're in a good place, not according to the eyes of the world, but according to the eyes of God. Now let me make a few quick observations about the structure uh, of this text as, as we're moving along, just so you understand what's going on. First, uh, you'll remember that the first beatitude and the eighth beatitudes, they end with that same statement, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think it's, that's a good argument that there are actually eight beatitudes and that this is sort of the last beatitude. Also, did you catch that these speak of a present reality? The first and the last, but the middle. Remember, they're all looking forward to the future. And so Jesus is speaking of a kind of already not yet reality in these beatitudes that's taking place. We have not yet received all that we shall have, and yet there is a true sense in which there is a present reality that this affects these beatitudes. And one last observation. Did you notice that Jesus shifts pronouns in verse 10 from they, speaking to the crowd generally, to you? That's always important when there's a pronoun shift. You want to pay attention to who is Jesus talking to? And so verse 10, he's speaking to the crowd in general, including the Gentiles. But it seems like in verses 11 to 12, he's zeroing in on the disciples. And here's what's happening. I believe there's a transition that's happening in the sermon where he's moving from these, these general beatitudes specifically to the disciples in his discussion. And those verses, 11 to 12, I think are really helping us unpack what he meant by verse 10. So I'm going to be kind of toggling back and forth between 10 and 11 to 12 this morning. But we're ready to get started. So if you're taking notes, here's our big idea. Here's our big idea. It's this. You can write this down. The life of a follower of Christ means the cross before the crown. The life of a follower of Christ means the cross before the crown. Now notice first, he says, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness say. Now, we need to make some observations about this. First, this is not honestly quite what you would expect, right? I mean, can we just agree on that? You're reading through the list of these Beatitudes, and he is talking about a certain kind of person. And notice the way that he describes this kind of person. It is someone who is poor in spirit, who mourns sin, someone who is meek and hungry for righteousness, a kind of person who is merciful to others, pure in heart, a peacemaker. 
Now, if you were just to stop right there, I would think the next statement would be, this person gets a trophy, right? That's a good guy. This is a good woman. This is the kind of person you want to hang out with. But instead, you get this seemingly unfair declaration that this person is not going to receive a crown like we would expect, but a cross. They're not going to receive, it says in this moment, immediate rewards, but instead persecution. Now, this seems really unfair just to human standards, and we know that God is just. And we think in our minds and hearts, obviously, good people should receive rewards and bad people should receive punishments, kind of like Christian karma, right? Where uh, the effect and the cause, they always make sense together. Reminds me a little bit of uh, my dog when I was growing up. I had a, a miniature poodle. Her name was Lovey. I don't think I named her Lovey, but, but my parents named her Lovey, and she was my dog, and we slept together, loved this dog. Um, she had pink little bows when she would come back from the groomer. It was not quite the manly dog that I envisioned myself with. But when this dog, Lovey, would do good things, like go outside and do her business, my dad would give her a treat. And he would scream out, treat! And she would come running, and she'd do, oh, I did something good, and I'd get a treat. And, and when she was bad, like, did her business like where my dad stepped into his bed every night, and he found out in the middle of the night, she had a whack with the paper, right? And like, he was trying to teach her the difference between right and wrong. Now, what's interesting is my dad, I never, in all of my experiences with Lovey, experienced him take Lovey and sit her down next to him and say, you know, Lovey, um, I need to talk to you about your heart and what's going on in your motivations. Why is it that you always go to the bathroom on my side of the bed, usually at night when I can't see, right before I step in? Never, never did that. Now, why? Well, because my dad was not particularly concerned with my dog's heart and my dog obviously did not have the kind of heart and soul that a human does. And so he's really just looking for behavior modification. But if we're thinking about humanity, what we find in the scriptures is that as we move into the new covenant, the new covenant that comes with Jesus is actually concerned very much so with the heart of God's people. Does that make sense? Uh, we are told that this covenant comes with a new heart in which God's rules will actually be written on our hearts, where we will actually demonstrate a love for God's word, where it will be sweeter than honey, the things of this world. It will be more precious to us than gold, the metals of this world. We will value heavenly things above earthly things. He is concerned with our hearts. Brothers and sisters, I've been a Christian for about 30 years now. I think this beatitude and the kind of suffering that comes encapsulated with it is actually one of the things that I, I wrestle most with. There's not a place where I'm more confronted with the multiplicious motivations of my heart, the many motivations of my heart, my confidence in Christ, whether it is or it is not, then when I am seeking to live a righteous life in a fallen world and my circumstances catch me, get worse, not better. Have you been there? And you're wondering in those moments, like, I, I didn't think this was the program. I thought the program was, you turn the heat on, I get more righteous, and then you take the heat off because now I'm cooked, right? But that doesn't seem to be the way that spirituality works. It's in those moments, though, that 
I'm just seeing this disparity between my, my obedience to God and the experience of my, my, my life on the ground level that I'm asking, is my heart really anchored to Christ in heaven or to the things of this earth? Like that's when the questions become real. Is my confidence really in Christ? But notice that Jesus isn't speaking here just of persecutions in general. No, here he is speaking of something else. Now, can we also admit that sometimes we invite trouble and mislabel that trouble that we cause on ourselves, persecution. Have you ever been there? Like, you maybe uh, sinned, and then things got rough, and you forgot about the sin that got you there, and all you think about is the there that you're in, and you're like, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, why are things so hard? Or maybe it's that you just made a foolish decision. And it's interesting, Peter actually picks up on both of these scenarios in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.15, he says, look, you don't need, you need to make sure that you're not causing trouble for yourself because you've basically been a punk when you're suffering for righteousness sake. I mean, I don't know a better way to put it. He says, you know, you're you're, you're not gentle in your speech. You're kind of, you're mean, you're hostile, uh, you're angry, you're not being gentle. And he says, you need to make sure that when you're suffering for righteousness sake that you are gentle and respectful. And not only that, he says, you need to make sure that you're not bringing suffering or persecution on yourself because of your sin. So in 1 Peter 5.15, he says, let none of you suffer as an evildoer. And he specifically, I believe, has Jesus' statement here in mind, suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, My heart deflects responsibility as a natural reflex. Anybody have that reflex? Like, when you know that you have done something wrong or somebody's accusing you of something wrong, your initial thought is, no, I didn't, but we can talk about it. I mislabel my feeling of injustice as persecution. It's kind of like a football game, right? Like, we're the home team, and if somebody says, like, basically, like, we're we're throwing a a penalty flag like a referee, you know, our immediate, you know, call is, well, I didn't do that. Are you kidding, ref? Do you have eyes? Can you see? And then all of a sudden, they slow it down in slow motion. And you're like, oh, man, he, like, tripped him. Did he just take that dude's wallet? And we realize that a lot of times that's true of us as we start to unpack the motives and what's going on in our hearts and what we have done. We, We tend to forget what really happened. We We have poor sight when looking at ourselves. Sometimes we bring persecution on ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about this in his sermon on this very text. He says, we can bring endless suffering upon ourselves. We can create difficulties for ourselves, which are quite unnecessary, because we have some rather foolish notion of witnessing and testifying, or because in the spirit of self-righteousness, we really do call it down on our own heads. Anybody been like that before, like, you look back at something and you're like, man, I feel persecuted, but like, actually, I probably brought this upon myself. Like, I've done that. Well, let me ask you, have you ever brought suffering on yourself for a foolish decision? Or because you've perhaps confused your political agenda with Christ's agenda? Or not because of what you said, but how you said it? And then defined it as persecution. I think we all should reevaluate our hearts carefully when we find ourselves in a situation where we sense that we are being persecuted. In other words, we should never waste that sense of persecution. 
I believe there is a way in which our eyes get zeroed in on our souls and our circumstances with a kind of clarity that doesn't always come to us when we are in a comfortable situation. Persecution helps us to see ourselves more clearly. It helps us to evaluate whether or not we have brought this upon ourselves or whether or not it is something that has come because of our being associated with Jesus. Uh, Thomas Watson said this, and you need to ask yourself if this could be said of you. He says, when men through precipitancy and rashness, now you're like, what's precipitancy? I looked it up, it means the same thing as rashness. So when men through rashness and rashness run themselves into trouble, it is a cross of their own making and not of God's laying upon them. Anybody here good at making crosses for yourselves? I might be the only one, but I'm telling you, sometimes I know this is me. See, but Jesus is not speaking of someone who goes looking for persecution or creates it or builds their own crosses. Jesus speaks particularly, third, of those persecuted for righteousness' sake. Did, did you see that? He, he here says they're a specific kind of persecuted person. Now, what does persecution mean? Maybe you're like, I don't really quite connect with all that that means. I, I didn't mean to bury the lead, but persecution, it, it's a kind of thing that takes a couple of different forms. You can face physical persecution, or you can face verbal persecution. So uh, you'll notice that Jesus shifts to those second person pronouns in verse 11, and he begins to kind of unravel what persecution can look like. He gives a couple of kinds of verbal persecution, and then he, of course, speaks of physical persecution. Uh, so you'll notice uh, first, that reviling in verse 11 is one that he mentions to the disciples. Uh, reviling and the other is slander. And these are both verbal persecutions. Now, reviling is a word that means to insult or shame someone with words. Jesus experienced this from the Jewish leaders when he was hanging upon the cross. It's there in Matthew 7, 27, 42 that they said, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, Come down from that cross that we may see and believe. And not only that, we're told that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now you'll notice that the words that they used were true words. Jesus is the Christ. But they also used that truth to mock him. Now, you might have experienced this kind of, this kind of reviling in some low-grade kind of ways. Uh, I remember the first time that I experienced it. I was in high school, and uh, there was a season where I, I really doubled down on my commitment to Christ, and um, I, I didn't realize this, but apparently some people had kind of noticed, and it wasn't a good thing. So a friend of mine uh, said, hey, we're, we're going to a party this weekend. Are you coming? Did you hear about it? And without a, a break or a pause for me to respond, his friend said, oh, he wouldn't want to come to this party because he's a Christian, like with air quotes. I don't know if air quotes existed yet or not, but I felt them. And, and what did they mean? They meant this is somebody who says he loves Jesus and so he doesn't love the things that we love and so he's not part of us. That's, that's low grade kind of persecution. It gets way worse, but there are subtle ways in which we are reviled because we seek to posture ourselves and position ourselves next to Christ. 
I had another uh, brother who's a, a member here at Trinity Bible Church who some years ago was reprimanded as a teacher because one of the students demanded that he use feminine pronouns to refer to him as a male. And because he saw sex as something that was given by God, he felt like that would be going against his conscience. He couldn't do it, so he got in trouble for it. I would say that that is a higher degree of persecution that's coming from someone who is seeking to honor Christ. I'm not saying that it's easy always to know how to respond in these situations, but what I would say is, is that as we posture ourselves next to Christ, anchor our hope in Christ, we can expect that persecution will come in these kinds of ways. Uh, verse 11, if you look there, you'll notice they mention another kind of verbal persecution of slander uh, when it says they are those who are going to utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Now, we've seen this throughout the history of the church. Tacitus claimed that Nero blamed Christians for the great fire of Rome in 64 AD. Others slandered Christians, said they were cannibals or that they were incestuous, uh, misrepresenting all kinds of facts that they would hear about Christian community. And still today, you'll notice that our cancel culture will quickly dismiss and cancel tradition, traditional Christian claims as being bigoted, but also uses slander in their dismissal. Does that make sense? It's not just that we are, are bigots and don't like the truth, but they add something that is untrue right next to it. So let me give you an example. If you're a Christian who is against abortion, you are anti-women's right due to your patriarchal beliefs. Have you heard that? Like, I, that's not me. Like, I believe that human life is valuable and I want to protect it. Uh, but, but that does not mean that I don't think that women should have rights. In fact, I believe that the way that the Bible speaks of women's rights is unparalleled in every other philosophical system and that we see that women are created in the very image of God. Or what about when you look at a view of homosexuality as being a sin because the Bible says so, and that must therefore mean that we hate gays. And yet, as I read the scriptures, it tells me that I am to love my gay neighbor to preach Christ to them, just as I preach Christ to all who suffer from any kind of sin. We all need Christ, and he's the only way to salvation. And we could go on and on. Like that affirming uh, Black Lives Matter, saying that we don't agree with the philosophy that's behind that system, means that we must not believe that black lives do matter. And absolutely they do. I believe that racism is a lie from the pit of hell. See, this is all fake, slanderous news. It's not new. And if you are a Christian, what you can expect is that you will be slandered in some way for the cause of the gospel. And let me just encourage you, maybe you're a young Christian and you feel like it's hard to have these conversations because you're still trying to figure out, like, where's my other shoes so I can get to class and stuff like that? And everybody's getting all philosophical and you don't even know the answers and like, find a good church, find somebody to disciple you to help you think through these things, and realize that it's not necessarily a bad thing if you say something that people don't like. Now, you need to make sure you need to say it in the right way. Make sure it really is what the Bible says. Make sure that your convictions are true, that your conscience is clear. But, but it's not necessarily a bad thing if people say that your belief in the Scriptures, your love for Christ, means that you're not one of them. But there's also physical persecution. That's that 
I believe, high-grade suffering that we typically think of. Like when we look at nations like China or North Korea and more recently Afghanistan and the ways that they persecute Christians. When Jesus tells the disciples they specifically will be persecuted in verse 12, he reminds them that they're in good company because he says, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, later in Matthew 23, 37, uh, we find that Jesus actually understands that Israel has a history, and in general, prophets have a history of being killed. And it's not just the world that is killing the prophets, it's the, the nation of Israel and even Jerusalem. He says, as he's looking over Jerusalem, in Matthew 23, 37, this is Jesus, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. I mean, think about that being your reputation with Jesus, prophet killer. And as the Jewish leaders prepared to stone Stephen in Acts 7.52, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Like, in other words, like, it's hard for me to even find the prophet that you treated well. And he says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Now, I could go through the sad history of the prophets. It is long, it is torted, but... Just consider King Ahab's wife, Jezebel. She had the prophets of God killed in mass. This is the king of God's people, allows his wife to do this. And in doing so, we find that Elijah, it got so bad that he actually thought that he was the only prophet left. And in 1 Kings 19.10, he tells God, I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, by God's grace, we see that he had reserved a number of hundreds others for himself. But I believe that he legitimately thought that he was the only one left in that moment. Prophets were cut in two, burned, crucified, beaten, whipped, thrown into pits. And Jesus says his disciples will suffer like the prophets. Now, not all suffered to the same degree or in the same way, but prophets were persecuted. But notice also, we need to ask ourselves how we know that we are suffering for righteousness' sake. Now, Jesus speaks of a, a person living in a certain kind of way and a, for a certain reason. That's what means they are being persecuted for righteousness sake. This person so lives to do the will of the Father as is revealed in the scriptures. They are someone that is a, a Bible person who looks to live it out. But did you catch the shift when Jesus speaks to his disciples in verse 11? Jesus says, they will be persecuted on my account. Now this comes close, I believe, to claiming Jesus' deity in this moment. In fact, Craig Keener says it this way. He says, you know, Jewish teachers of the day, who some might have expected Jesus as being as a mere teacher, they would expect students to suffer for God's name, but not for their own names. That would have been unreasonable suffering. But Jesus says, on my account, it is worthy that you are persecuted. I am not like the teachers that you have seen in the past. See, Jesus is calling his students to suffer on his account. Furthermore, Jesus says that righteousness' sake, hear me, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, it centers on following the way of life that Jesus led. He is the one that we look to in our suffering. Thus, following Jesus' name 
It means a wholehearted devotion to living a righteous life. That's what it looks like to suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, let me just give you five quick checks to ask yourself whether or not you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake or some other dumb reason, okay? So let's, let's just go through these one by one real quick. First, ask yourself, is obedience to God's word driving you? Is it really scripture? Now, that's not always easy to discover. Sometimes we sort of take text out of context. We eisegete to support the thing we already want to do. But you need to test your heart to see, is this really the scriptures and what God has actually said that is driving me? Or am I being driven by a desire to be known? Do do I like fights, whether it's persecution or some other kind of fight? Do Have I maybe mislabeled my political convictions as biblical convictions? Now, both are okay to have, political convictions and biblical convictions. I just want to make sure I know the difference between the two. Second, am I increasingly evidencing fruits of the Spirit in my suffering? In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says that you suffer for righteousness' sake, always ready to give a defense. But he goes on to say, always do it in a spirit of gentleness and respect. Now you'll remember that gentleness is one of those fruits of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, like love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and he goes on. And then he ends up with saying, and, and by the way, uh, you need to make sure that you are gentle in a way that is led by the Holy Spirit that comes from the Holy Spirit. So if our response to suffering it's fits of anger and, and divisions. We, we might not be in a good place. Could be that there's some other reason that we are standing for than God's word. Uh, third, do you suffer as a Christian for the glory of God? First Peter 4.16 says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Has it been made clear that you are being targeted for Christ? or distinctly Christian beliefs. If someone said, like, it's because you are a Christian, it's because of those Christian beliefs. And by the way, those beliefs that they are highlighting are actually your beliefs. Fourth, is your conscience clean in your suffering? Uh, It's interesting, Paul, Paul experienced much persecution. He was beaten, whipped, slandered, reviled, shipwrecked, and the list goes on. And yet we are told in the midst of all of that, in Acts 23.1, he says, I have lived in all good conscience to this day. In other words, when the heat gets turned up, there are all kinds of ways that you can act in ungodliness. Sin can come up. Uh, You can do things that you should repent of that you have not. And yet we find that Paul says that he sought in every way to believe, to do what he believed was right. He didn't do what seemed wrong. He had a clear conscience. Only the gospel caused offense. And can I just tell you, brothers and sisters, something, my experience in the Christian life? It is a terrible thing to live in a way that you don't have a clear conscience. It, it is a sad existence. It will not let you go if you have the Holy Spirit. But it is a beautiful and life-giving thing to do if you are living in a way that you know that you are seeking in all integrity's sake to honor God. You're repenting of sins where you've, where you've sinned. 
you're seeking to change and be transformed by the power of the gospel, that's a good place. It's a good place. But notice fifth, can you seek the good of those who persecute you? Now, this is like next level stuff. I'm not always sure that I'm here, just to be honest with you. But notice in Matthew 5, 43 to 45, Jesus says this. I mean, just on the heels of this beatitude, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. See, loving your enemy, this side of Christ's return, it might mean praying for their good or for your heart to want to be able to pray for their good. It's not a call to a kind of uh, picnic with your abuser. That's not what Jesus is talking about here or saying that it would be wrong for that person who has committed egregious sin to go to jail. That's not what he's talking about. What he means is that we are trusting God to bring perfect justice when Jesus returns in the future and to show mercy as we wait. That's what he's calling us to. But second, notice the promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here Jesus repeats the ground of that first beatitude. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, it doesn't look like self-confidence and power. That might be what we expect if we're thinking about the Roman Empire, or the great, the great empires of this world. But spiritual poverty in oneself and persecution from without mark those in Christ's kingdom. Did you catch that? They are those who are poor in spirit and persecuted. They are low on the inside, and they are also humble on the outside in the way that they are receiving persecution. Those are the ones who already possess the kingdom. But Jesus, he gives even more clarity, I think, in verses 11 to 12. Uh, you'll notice it's there again that Jesus has shifted his attention to the disciples, saying, you, he says, blessed are you, verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then verse 12, and be glad. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One commentator noticed that it's fascinating that Jesus didn't say before us, because he's the eternal one. I might be reading into it, but it's true. Now, a few realities here strike me. First, notice in verses 11 to 12 that he shifts persecution for righteousness' sake in verse 10 to persecution on my account in verse 11. He's speaking of suffering while seeking to honor Christ as the king of your life. Our confidence is in Christ, not in ourselves. Second, notice that Jesus says to rejoice and be glad that you're persecuted. In fact, one old commentator translated this text, rejoice ye and leap for joy. Sounds a little bit excessive. I mean, I'm getting persecuted, and you want me not only to rejoice, but to jump up with joy? Again, not what you'd expect. In fact, last night as I was preparing to this, it was just hard for me not, as I'd been reading articles by my friend on his friends in Afghanistan, not just to tear up at thinking about brothers and sisters in Christ hiding in their closets with their children, 
praying that they, they go undetected for weeks, maybe months, maybe more. My first response is not to rejoice over that. I'm not sure that's what's being called for here. I'm not sure that my response to this kind of persecution, if it was me though, would be prayer and singing like Paul and Silas after being beaten and thrown into prison in Philippi in Acts 16. Yet Paul reminds Timothy and us in 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 Timothy 3.12, he tells this young pastor, I want you to have this firmly set in your minds and hearts. Your congregation needs to hear this. You need to hear this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I haven't seen that written on many pillows in people's rooms that I've walked into. But it's an expectation. It's a promise. We are going to face persecution if we are aligned with Christ. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Is there something strange were happening to you? You know what's interesting? Almost without fail, when tragedy and suffering hits me, my first response is what? Surprise! Over this strange thing that is happening to me. And yet, over the years, the more that I and we have experienced suffering and tragedy and in some sense of, of persecution in different ways, there is a way in which the heart has been recalibrated to another kingdom, isn't there? In which it's not as strange anymore. Suffering isn't as surprising as it used to be. The, the edge is never lost. But there's a greater sense in which you understand that this is a broken world and we really do need Jesus to come back and set things right. Don't miss this. Suffering is a normal context of faithfulness to Jesus. And Jesus says rejoicing is the right response. You don't have to find persecution. Persecution will find you. Now why though? Well, Jesus gives a heavenly rationale for rejoicing and suffering with two points in verse 12. Did you catch that? Two reasons that you can rejoice in your suffering. Two things to set your eyes on. One, heavenly rationale number one, our reward is great in heaven. Do you see this? God's people see their reward in heaven amidst the persecutions that they face here on earth, like things are hard here, but my eyes are set here. I, I know the, the promises of what is to come amidst the situation that is all around me, but what is this reward? Well, there's a real sense in which we already have received some of this inheritance. In fact, if you read Ephesians 1, we're told by Paul that we've already received every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Just go read that. We are a blessed people already. But here it seems that Jesus is speaking of something that is coming in the future. He anticipates a not yet reality. See, later Jesus will tell his disciples to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy them. And we know later that we are told by Peter that we've been saved for an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We will receive new bodies and minds free from the effects of sin, and we will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth, unencumbered by the fall and all of its effects. The unavoidable persecution of this age, it will one day give way to a pervasive peace and joy, and the presence 
of God, where along with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, we will come and dwell in the presence of our triune God forever. And we will behold him with a kind of immediacy and clarity that we have never had before. The object of pure and undefiled joy in all of its perfections, we get to see with new eyes, unhindered by sin. We can gaze on God for eternity. And my, what I'm told by some of the good preachers is it just gets better and better. All earthly joys. The best thing that you are living for right now other than Jesus. If we were all to throw those things up in the air and to gaze on all of those things, we could say with one voice, they altogether pale in comparison. They are an embarrassment and refuge. They are waste compared to the glories that await us in Christ. We don't need to lose sight of that. Our imaginations can't begin to grasp what awaits us in Christ when he returns, when he set things right. That's why Paul tells his church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, for this light and momentary affliction, I have never been afflicted like Paul, like any of the things, right? And he calls it his light and momentary affliction. He says, it is preparing for us. It is not wasted. It is preparing for us, what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They are passing away. But the things that are unseen, they are eternal things. Every time something gets broke in your house, it is a reminder that you live in a transient place with jacked up stuff that is just waiting for Jesus to come back with the good stuff. Does that make sense? Like, I can't tell you, something breaks into my house like three or four times a day. It's not always Jack's fault, but like we, sorry, it's my son, not always, but sometimes, but stuff gets broke all the time. And I'm just reminded I cannot wait for heaven where I'm not always paying people to fix stuff because I can't. I try, but I'm just, anyway. Maybe in the new heavens and the new earth I can fix stuff better. But it's not just that this too shall pass. Jesus says, this too shall pass away and give way to a better day. That's what we long for. See, this is the day when we will exchange our cross for a crown of life. See, we, we, we experience the cross before the crown, but there's a day coming when we will give up our cross and receive the crown that we long for. Is a reward the same for all? I don't have time to go into this. I believe there's a sense in which there's a good argument to say that, some, that all of us will be given according to our faithfulness. That might look different forever for some of us. Others believe the reward is the same. Either way, let me just clean it up this way and say, if I'm least in the kingdom of heaven, I'm in a good place. If I make it, I'm good. But Jesus says this future reward causes us to rejoice in our suffering because it reveals that Christ really is our all. See, sometimes we don't know that Christ is our all until Christ is all we have. That's when we experience his persevering grace the most acutely. Now, notice the second rationale that he gives. You look to the prophets. Now, you, you remember speaking, to, speaking of Moses in Hebrews eleven 26, we're told 
Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Did you catch that? He considered him the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now that's the Old Testament. And he is anticipating the Messiah. But later the disciples would see the great prophets, Moses and Elijah, alive and standing with Jesus and the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Think about this. Matthew 5, you're going to suffer tribulation like the prophets. They're thinking, oh great, like the great prophets, like Moses and Elijah. And then Peter shows up to the transfiguration mountain and he's like, oh, Moses and Elijah. They live Death has not defeated them. There is hope for those who are persecuted. Jesus says his disciples are equal and greater than the Old Testament prophets here. See, I, I think there's a major shift in redemptive history that's taking place in these verses. Jesus is looking to his disciples and he says, you are equal and greater than the Old Testament prophets and those who persecute them are lumped in with those who killed the prophets. That is my love for you. That is God's posture towards you. He is for you. But those of us who are persecuted for following Jesus also share good company with the prophets and the disciples. Of course, Jesus himself became like the persecuted prophets. You remember in John 15, 20? He reminds his disciples, the servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Of course, this is the shape of Christ's ministry. Please hear this. This is basic Christianity. The shape of Christian ministry it is not winning all the time in this, in this place. No, it, it is a life of humility that is followed by exaltation. It is a life of suffering followed by glory. We must take up the cross on our shoulders before Christ places a crown upon our heads. Now there are joys unspeakable for those who love Jesus, even now. But we know that this pales in comparison to what is to come. Jesus' cross and resurrection, it gives me meaning. It gives meaning to God's people of the past and the future glory that awaits us when he returns. That's, that's the gospel medicine that our hearts need to turn our sorrows into rejoicing. As 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I can't wait for that day. Well, let me close with uh, four quick applications on persecution. First, Christian, persecution creates the optical illusion that Jesus is further away, but he's actually closer. You know, there's a real sense in which if some of us were watching that, that plane in Afghanistan, that last plane take off the tarmac, we, we thought to ourselves, it almost feels like the hope of the goodness of Jesus is left with them for those people that were left behind. But he did not. He's not less powerful in our weakness. In fact, I, I love a, a hymn that was written by Isaac Watts for the persecuted. He says, are all the goes of Zion, are all the foes of Zion fools who thus devour her saints? Do they not know her savior rules and pities her complaints? You know, as we're watching the news and we see in Afghanistan, you know, the Taliban, like, boastfully hunting Christians. We can underestimate the power of our God. Do not underestimate it. Do not underestimate the power of your prayers for them, as you might think that they are hitting the ceiling and not making it all the way. 
God hears his people. He hears their complaints. Jesus sees it all, and he works it all for the good of God's people. Even when it feels like Jesus is not in control, he is. And Christian, second, persecution for Christ's sake is not due to your insufficient faith or faithfulness. You know, I've I've heard prosperity gospel preachers tell people that if they're sick, they go through hard things, it's because they have a deficient faith. The reason that they face a sickness or they don't have the money to pay bills is because they don't faith enough. And sometimes I tell you, there's a, there's, a, there's a place in my heart. First, we know this text says that's not true. But there's a place in my heart that when bad things happen, I begin to ask questions like, is there something wrong with me that I'm getting such special treatment of suffering in this moment? Like, did I do something to deserve this? I believe that's actually not a horrible question to ask. But we need to understand that we don't serve a God of Christian karma where We can always make direct correlations between the suffering that we face and what God is doing for our good in and through it. In fact, we need to be careful not to be like the Maltese Christians. Uh, There's this interesting scenario or situation that erupts in Acts 28. We find that Paul, he's shipwrecked, and he finds his way to the island of Malta. And when he swims upon shore, he'd been a prisoner but they received him joyfully because like, they thought, oh, this is the justice of God or the gods or whatever because he made it. If he would have drowned, it meant he was guilty, but he made it, so God is just. And then in the midst of this, he's warming himself by the fire and a snake jumps out and bites them and they said, oh, he must be like a murderer or something. And then we find at the end in verse six that they continue to watch and when his arm doesn't swell or anything, they said, oh, Verse 6, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Do you see that? Good things happen. Oh, it must be because you're a good person. Oh, bad things happen. It must be because you're a bad person. Oh, good things happen again. You must be God. Like, that's the way that our hearts tend to wrestle. Has your, has your heart kind of wrestled in that way, Lord? Like, things are really good happen to me because, like, I've been really good, and there's just, like, quid pro pro. Like, I give you good. You give me good back. That's not the way that... The Lord works in the hearts of his people. You remember Paul, he says all Christians will suffer just as Jesus and the prophets did. The prosperity gospel says good faith produces good rewards. Not, not like riches and good health. Jesus says that we should expect suffering. Third, Christians dodging persecution is not the mission of the church. Faithfulness is. Like I don't have time to dwell here, but I would just say like our number one agenda as a church We don't dream about Jesus has succeeded or failed based on the degree to which we have religious liberty. Now, that said, please fight with all your might for religious liberty. Like, I love it. I want it. But as we feel that encroaching, that that sense of loss of some of our religious liberties, we, we need to recognize that that doesn't mean that Jesus has failed in his mission to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We need to continue to, to, to proceed on the mission. Tell people about their need, not just for peace with one another, but peace with God. That only happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourth, Christian persecution clarifies what, that we believe the reward is completely worth it. Let me say that again. Persecution clarifies that we believe the reward is completely worth it. So Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, being God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and, I love what he, he adds to this, and that he rewards those who seek him. Do, do you see that? 
That's faith. We, we believe that we have a God who rewards those who seek him. Now, this works in a number of different ways. In suffering, there, there's one sense in which we are being sanctified as Christians. And in that sanctification, we all have ways in which we do not love God wholeheartedly as we should. We do not pursue Christ as wholeheartedly as we should. We've been talking about that in our discipleship classes with Fred Rowe. A lot of those failures at living for Christ are worship issues. We don't worship Jesus rightly. And sanctification is actually a process by which we are more and more turning our hearts towards full, wholehearted devotion towards God. So when persecution hits, we start asking questions like, am I, am I living in sin? Like, am I bringing this on myself? Is there pride in my life that needs to be gone? Is there some kind of sexual sin that I need to repent of? What is it that's going on? Is, is there something that I, am, I can attribute to this in my sin? And in that moment, we are becoming more and more perfect or wholeheartedly devoted to God and killing that sin. It's the way we become wholly more and more devoted to Jesus. And our life is about becoming more devoted to Jesus and our thoughts and our desires and our emotions and our works until Jesus comes back. But not only that, persecution not only sanctifies us, it sifts us. It sifts those who think they are Christians out from those who are truly Christians. Now let me just say this, like the, the Bible, I think you know this, says there's a category of person who thinks they are a Christian but are not. Matthew 13, 21, Jesus is describing a kind of faith that when they receive the word, it falls on the rock, it springs up to life, but as soon as the heat of persecution comes, it immediately falls away and scatters. Why? Because it's not true faith. And when persecution hits, those who do not love Christ most, or not seeking to be devoted to him most, fall away. Maybe that's you. Just think about this. We haven't really hit hard persecution. I hope that we never do, unless the Lord wills it, and, and then we'll face it. But does comfortable Christianity appeal to you? You know, it's interesting. Sometimes it doesn't take too much to, to veer our attention away from Jesus. And we need to ask ourselves in those moments, am I really loving Jesus or the benefits that come with Jesus? And once those benefits are stripped away, am I still seeking Christ? Maybe that's friends. Maybe that's a reputation. Maybe it's a girl that you're interested in or a guy. Maybe it's that you get lots of encouragement and affirmation because, wow, it's really cool that you like Jesus and stuff. But Jesus warns that that's not biblical faith. Maybe you need this morning to put your faith in Jesus, your suffering Savior who relentlessly went to the cross without flinching and died for you, suffered for you, was persecuted for you, so that you'd be the kind of Christian that would be persecuted for him. Third, persecution shows union with Christ and his people. While hurting Christians, while hunting Christians, the ascended Christ stopped Saul dead in his tracks in Acts 9-4, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, who is he persecuting? It's the church, but Jesus so identifies with the church that he says to Persecute the churches to persecute Jesus himself. That's the kind of unity that he feels with his people. And Jesus says, if you persecute the church, you have persecuted me. Jesus is with us in our sufferings. He feels them. He sees them. He doesn't miss them. It's as though he himself has been persecuted. We, like him, shall be raised up on the last day, though. So let us pray for Christians in places like Afghanistan, 
Iran, China, and others, that God would protect them and carry them through persecution faithfully. We do that every Sunday as we pray for the nations. Let us pray and be discipled intentionally in such a way that our faith would be persecution ready for whatever cross is laid on our shoulders until that day when Jesus himself gives us our crown so that we might be like one of the Christians in Afghanistan who sent my pastor friend Josh Manley this text with persecution in full view, gunshots out loud, people hunting him down along with his family, and he says this, I cannot stop my tears, but the good thing is this, it is because of Christ that we are suffering. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you this morning, this has been a sobering message. As we consider what it means to be a Christian, and Father, for some this morning, maybe this has been way different than what they anticipated it means to follow Jesus. But Father, I pray that for those of us who have heard this this morning, that you have helped us to see you truly in what you have called us to. Father, those here this morning who did not really understand the gospel and thought that the gospel would mean that things got better before they got worse, that you weren't the kind of Christ that intended them to go through hard things again. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see their need of you, of your son Jesus. That the reward that waits those who are in Christ is entirely worth it. Father, that they would truly put their faith in you this morning. And Father, we can't forget the nations that are being persecuted. We remember Christians in China, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, and elsewhere, Lord, who are suffering for the cause of the gospel. Father, hold them fast. Keep them safe. Protect them. Protect their faith. Help them to be faithful no matter what comes their way. And Lord, we, we ask that you would come quickly. Save us, we pray. Amen.